This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to another edition of The Minefield. Try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this program. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Scott, have you come back to Earth after last week's show? Ah, <laughs> very nice. Sorry, that, that was. was a, I didn't even mean that to be a pun in quite as bad a way as it came out. But I, that that was a fun show. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it made me no more interested in going into space. Did I? I win, did think... I win you over at all? We don't actually normally do this after a show where we stop and take account of. Whether Look, anyone's I, been persuaded I, of anything? I've never heard you talk so glowingly about either the possibilities of transcendence or or the essential nature of human aspiration. That actually that that made me that made me a bit happy, a bit warm. Um, <laughs> even as you rejected uh, every argument, even <laughs> even as I rejected all of it, the the idea, the one thing that I just couldn't help but kind of giggle to myself about afterwards, the idea that that a rampant, nefarious uh, unrestrained capitalist like Jeff Bezos is going to blast off into space, look behind him, see this fragile little earth and say, hmm, I really, really ought to take much more care in my, in my exploitation of, of human and environmental limits, shouldn't I? I did find that maybe pressing credulity just a little bit, but yeah, that, apart from that, I thought you were wholly convincing. That may not happen, I, I <laughs> okay, confess. Right. Um, this, show, this show isn't part two of that show. So no, it's not. We're no, doing something not, altogether no, different today, Scott. Look, I've been, I've been thinking a lot lately, I'll, I'll confess, about shame. And it's, it, it's interesting that one of the one of the convictions of a good many moral philosophers is that when it comes to individual human beings, shame is almost invariably uh, a counterproductive or detrimental sentiment. Uh, guilt, uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Stanley Cavell, in this glorious essay, I mean, it's one of the most extraordinary pieces of philosophical and aesthetic writing I think I've ever read. It's this long 150-page essay on uh, Shakespeare's King Lear. Uh, he says in, in this one little aside, uh, he said, uh, guilt and shame are united in their desire to hide something, but they're divided in what it is that they want to hide. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Cavell says that guilt wants to hide or conceal the deed, whereas shame represents a compulsion to hide oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there's something about that, the, the, the extent to which shame separates us out from human community. It ostracizes us from people. And the way in which shame, I think you could even say kind of imposed shame, has been weaponized by many societies to ostracize certain others who there is a great desire to uh, conceal them, to make mm-hmm. them uh, um, uh, separate themselves out from the political body, to not be visible to the eyes of the public, or, or at least shame, uh, kind of imposing shame as a way of denying people recognition. I think, well, you know, a devastating all, form of punishment. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. And, and there's a, you know, there's for good reason, shame has been regarded, I think rightly, as a form of social death. It's a, mm-hmm. it's, it's the death sentence before one physically dies. Well, perhaps even um, worse and, than death, because you, yes. you continue to live with it, which is... I think that, that, can that's I, exactly I right. know this is just a sidebar, and I, I don't want to spend mm. more time on it, but the one observation I would make about that comment, though, that quote, is it does seem to pre... 
suppose that who one is is separate and distinct from what one does. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> and is that right? Yeah, yeah, probably. You think it probably is right? Uh, I think that observation that that's what it presumes presu- is right. Yeah, but do you think it, yeah. that's a correct presupposition? Like, do you think that that position is correct and defensible? Uh, that one is necessarily separate from what one does. Mm. I think that what one does needn't define a person. Uh, it, it certainly needn't define a person forever. And I think one of the corrupting things about shame is that it encloses someone in a prison of, of their own making. Uh, in, in other words, you will forever be known as the person who did this. And precisely mm. because of that shame, unless under very, very, very specific, I think, political and social circumstances, shame isn't and cannot be transformative. It can only, uh, it can only be used as a form of, if you like, social intimidation, a way of enforcing a degree of conformity. Uh, rather than allowing for the idea that one can tr- – one can uh, – how can I put this? That there can be a process of moral, personal elevation. Uh, um, there can be a reconciliation to the broader social or political body. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Okay. Anyway, sorry. I, I, just something I spotted and thought was worth noting. Um, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Continue. No, no, no. I, I, I don't mind. Um, so if and, – and look, I, I would say that this is a contested point, that shame is deleterious when it's – when it concerns in individuals. Um, Kwame Anthony Appiah uh, incidentally wrote a really, really fascinating book about the persistence of honor and shame and that maybe shame isn't quite as deleterious as we thought it was. So, you know, it, it's a contested point. But what about, Walid, when you blow shame up and talk about it at a national level, a societal level? Is a sense of feeling ashamed of belonging to one's nation, is that necessarily deleterious? Mm. Is that something that prohibits or forbids or stands in the way of, say, effective political action? Um, and this is, a, this, is a much more, this is a much more interesting point, I, I think. Um, uh, Richard Rorty, who himself is a very, very controversial philosopher, uh, in, in a 1998 book called Achieving Our Country, he, he expressed his deep concern at a stance adopted by the cultural and the, and the political left um, that essentially expressed uh, an unwillingness, a kind of unseemliness, an, even an unfashionability in, in expressing a degree of patriotic or national pride. Uh, instead, how can you be proud of a nation that has committed genocide yep. against the original inhabitants of a particular land? How can you express a degree of pride over uh, American warmongering, for instance, in Vietnam? Um, Rorty's point is that there is a direct analogy between the individual and the national, that in the same way as self-respect is necessary for moral for individual moral advancement, for betterment, for progress. In exactly the same way, a certain degree of national pride is necessary for progress, for inv- advancement. And he said that while, you know, it'd be very unusual for there to be a nation that was entirely without shame, that shame needs to have a greater degree of pride in order for that nation to live up to its own aspirations. Because and otherwise be it doesn't to- believe enough in itself to to or achieve anything. Yeah, yeah. That that that's exactly right. Can can yeah. I ask what do you what do you make of that point? Uh 
I actually find it hard to disagree with him. Hmm. I'm trying. But I, because I national could, pride does need to have a kind of te- or a nationhood has to have a kind of telos. You have to believe that you've come from something not necessarily ignoble, and that you are going someplace that that in the long run at least actually leads to the betterment of most of the inhabitants know what, of that country. Do you know what? Country. Yeah, maybe, but not necessarily. Mm. So I, I've thought about this for, before in the context of comparing American, by which I mean the US. Um, yeah politics on things like race and slavery to Australian politics on race. Mm. And now they're different in that the Australian race question is, I would argue, primarily an Indigenous question. Mm. And in America, uh, in the United States, it feels to me that the Indigenous aspect is more or less ignored because it's overwhelmingly about slavery and black America in popular discourse, right? Um, Certainly as an Australian, when you go to the United States, the absence of an Indigenous conversation is notable. And so I get they're different in that way. But one of the things I've always thought about the way America does these things is that because its national mythology is one of infinite progress, however realisable that is, you might say it's naive or even destructive, but because of that, and Australia doesn't have a national mythology of that, Mm. America is more able, I think, to acknowledge its past failures because it can easily incorporate that into a story of its own progress. So you can talk about slavery in America because America can turn that into a story about how it overcame slavery. That's exactly right. Australia That's can't right. do that. If, if you were to talk about slavery in Australia, then that's a stain and you, there's no answer to it. Because we don't have, I suppose you would call it a telos, right? You don't. Mm. We don't have that telos of, of overcoming or of, of being progressive in the sense of, you know, constantly improving. So to that extent, I think, I mean, do you want to call that national pride or not? Yes, possibly. I think I'm just more interested in the basis for it. So I think it's about the narratives that you have that sustain that national pride. Because some national pride gets in the way of action, and some national pride facilitates it, depending on the action that's required and the nature of the mythology that underpins that pride. Am I making any sense there? Absolutely. And, and in fact, Waleed, uh, let me just even push this one step deeper because I, I think you really are onto something. You're onto something important. One of the reasons that the quote-unquote indigenous question doesn't come up with the same moral political ferocity in the United States, and I mean, sorry, I, I can't say it doesn't come up, but it's certainly, you're right, it doesn't come up to the same degree as the quote-unquote slavery issue or the so-called race problem. One of the reasons is, is that it's not just a mythos of infinite progress that sustains American life. It's uh, America's uh, conception of itself, I should say. It's the idea of a kind of providential founding of the nation. And if the land itself already belonged to another people, and if that people had to be physically, nationally, culturally exterminated, in order, for the, in order for the myth of founding to be given this providential gloss, then you're absolutely right. It cannot be justified. Therefore, it must go through a process of deliberate national historical yeah, and, and so this is the unremembering. This is the mm. caveat that I think you have to apply is that you, Australia and America are having different race conversations partly because where you're talking about settler societies, 
delegitimizing the fact of settlement is an altogether existentially different question to, yeah. Yeah. to other questions that might be to do with things that happened in history but are not about the very idea of the nation. So I think that's true. But as you were talking, uh, and indeed as you were quoting, the question I was going to ask you, and I will, I will do it now. What do you make of societies like Japan or Germany? Mm. So these are societies that I think underwent probably the most profound sense of shame you can as a country. Yet I wouldn't say... They're countries without a national pride. How do you think they've pulled that off? Um, in Japan, it is a much more complex situation, I'll confess. I mean, one mm. of the things, one of the remarkable things about the story of Germany from 1945 onwards, and we discussed this actually at quite some length in the show that we did about the anniversary of the toppling of the Berlin Wall, one of the remarkable things was the sheer cultural and aesthetic apparatus that mm. went into place to codify, to disseminate, to embrace, to acknowledge the extent of Germany's shame, uh, of, if, if you could even say, a degree of kind of national taintedness, that this isn't a chapter that can easily be turned it's, there's not a new page that can easily be turned to. Instead, the only way out of that situation of international shame, of taintedness, of guiltworthiness, of complicity, is by recognizing it and embracing it wholly. Now, of course, that created its own countervailing movement. That's created its own backlash uh, that, you know, almost uh, accusations of a kind of guilt industry or a form of national masochism uh, that then becomes either self-defeating or at least bad faith. I think what's, what's, really, what's really interesting there, Waleed, is that for some nations, a sense of collective shame over egregious crimes or egregious wrongs of the past or of the deeds, the conduct of one's ancestors from which either we are now familiarly attached or from which many of us now directly benefit – for, for many people, and I, I, I get the sense, and this is one of the reasons I was hoping we could talk about this today, I get the sense that that sense of shame uh, over the misdeeds, the crimes, the wrongs of a nation in which we are all to some extent either complicit or that we've adopted by virtue of our migrating to the nation and therefore benefiting from, the, from, from, from crimes of the past, uh, or at least that can't simply be shrugged off by means of some overarching mythos of progress. Um, these, for quite some time, have not been regarded, the embracing, the recognition of a degree of national shame. These have, this has not been a sentiment that's necessarily opposed to a degree of national pride. But I've actually found increasingly, and I'm not sure if you found the same, but for instance, uh, with some of the ongoing controversies surrounding the teaching of quote-unquote critical race theory, Mm. In schools and universities, we've had our own little debate in Australian Parliament about precisely that. Which was weird. There, which is just weird. Very weird. But, the the but, extent but, to but, which we import debates from America that have nothing to do with us is extraordinary. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, is, it is part of a kind of desperate vanguard international coalition, I yeah. feel. Um, but anyway, uh, there, there is the sense that if you name, if you recognize 
the extent of one's complicity or the degree to which we now live on tainted lands or that we now live necessarily tainted or complicit lives, that that itself cannot be reconciled with the degree of national pride that's necessary to be able to sort of look, look at oneself as a member of this political community, much less guarantee a degree of national progress where everybody is bettered through our national prosperity. I guess what, I, what, I, what worries me at the moment is that we seem increasingly incapable of being able to hold together a significant recognition of shame in and through our belonging to a political community, to a national, to, to a national life with a feeling of, therefore, this is one of the ways that we express, even if it's painful, but this is one of the ways we express love for country. Um, one of the things that I've, I've learned consistently from Raymond Gator is that when you have love for nation without the possibility of feeling shame at what one's nation has done, that then becomes a corrupted form of political community, which has a name, and that name is jingoism. In other words, a form of kind of debased or superficial patriotism. So I, I guess for, for me, I'm, I'm worried that increasingly we feel many seem to be expressing the sense that we either have to plunge headlong into a morass of deep, grotesque embarrassment over one's participation, one's belonging to the life of a nation, or we have to belong to a kind of chest-beating patriotic brigade that says, well, even if those things were done, and even if they are as egregious as, as you say, they are solidly in the past and be, therefore becomes wrong to be consigned to the past, confined to the past. We simply need to turn our sights to making sure that everyone is made better for the future. It's that stark opposition, I think, between either pride in one's nation versus fully registering the extent of one's national shame. That, for me, is a political problem. I think it's a moral problem that we increasingly need to confront. But don't you think it's also an inevitable consequence of the shame being expressed in such absolute terms? Possibly. So yes, in I other words, right. if, if what is being asked right. of you is a total disavowal of everything because your founding act is so shameful that you cannot, like you are complicit the minute you exist, a kind of original sin yeah. with no real possibility of redemption that is politically realisable. You know, to continue the analogy, no clear mechanism for sacrificial atonement, then the only option that you have is jingoism. Mm. I mean, what, what, else, what else can you do? Or, or I mean, yeah, without being too kind of pathetic about this, I mean, the two options then, if, that, if, if shame means no agency... Yes. If the extent of one's complicity means that one's hands are dirty no matter what one does, then the two options are either jingoism or almost a kind of cultural or national suicide. You, you yes. simply opt out altogether. You, now, you, the you, latter will never be feasible, certainly not on a grand scale, Yeah, which makes the former inevitable, doesn't it? Yes. But I think that, well, it is precisely the question. Does complicity mean no agency. And we've, I, I think you and I both have certain concerns about some of the claims, some of the totalizing gestures made by things like critical race theory. Uh, I, I yeah. really... Well, I've, I've got more I mean, than just concerns with the I know totalizing claims. I've, I've got all kinds of theoretical concerns with it too. But yes. yes. But if we can at least say that one of the problems with the ways in which shame has been weaponized 
means that one can only ever be a passive bystander and therefore one without real agency in something like what might be called both recognition and reparation for harms in the past. Uh, one can only ever one can only ever be one who rubs one's hands or puts sackcloth on and yep. rubs one's head with ash. Um, then, then I think you're right. You know, being confined to a position of non-agency is morally, politically problematic. It also simply rends the possibilities of political community. I guess the real question then is, can shame, can a full recognition of one's complicity in, one's taintedness by, one's being polluted from, the deeds of the past, can that give rise to forms of robust political moral agency? I think that becomes an increasingly pressing question. Mm. You're listening to The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can also listen to the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. This is really exciting for me, Willie. Do you know these people that you've been kind of reading for years and years and years and suddenly you're able to, to talk to? I don't know. It's, maybe it's, it's like listening to Queen and then meeting the lead guitarist. It was this like, is, like when I is... got to interview Elmo and when I got to interview Jason Alexander. <laughs> is that true? Elmo's my favorite interview ever. I have to talk to you about it one day. It's an absolutely <laughs> extraordinary experience. I'm more impressed by Jason Alexander. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Uh, pro- pro- anyway. Probably because of my own identification with him. <laughs> anyway, this is this is something like that for me. Alexis Shotwell is professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology and also in the Department of Philosophy at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. She's the author of, to my mind, one of the most important books of moral and political philosophy of the last decade. It's called Against Purity, Living Ethically in Compromised Times. Alexis, it's late there. Thank you so much for being willing to join us on The Minefield. Such a pleasure to be here. So so we've been talking uh, generally to some extent about shame. Canada has uh, is in the throes of its own summer of shame. Uh, anybody who's been following the news really at any level uh, would have been horrified by the discovery. Is it right to call it the discovery? I'm not sure. Uh, of hundreds of unmarked graves on the grounds of former Indian residential schools. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has described this as a national shame. Uh, um, It's very, very difficult, I think, to observe that, to understand the extent to which this wasn't just uh, a particular institutional failing or even series of institutional failings, but there's something about this discovery that casts a pall on the entirety of the relationship between those new settlers in Canada and the indigenous peoples that are endemic to the land. Um, you've, you've heard us talk about shame. I'm just wondering if you just want to weigh in on this first point about mm. how, how do you understand, I guess, the rejection on the part of many, we see it here in Australia, it's certainly apparent in the United States, the rejection on the part of many uh, or the unwillingness, the reticence to give themselves over to that acknowledgement of a kind of shamefulness or a being ashamed by these, the legacy of these national crimes and deeds. I mean, listening to you two talk about it, I was thinking, um, I went to graduate school in Santa Cruz, California in the U.S., and one of the people on my committee, my dissertation committee, was a really wonderful philosopher named David Hoy, who was friends with Richard Rorty. And um, 
Richard came down to Santa Cruz often. Um, his son now, I think, lives there and is a lawyer um, in Santa Cruz. And and David was kind enough to invite me to lunch one day with him at a moment when I was working on the very first thing that I ever wrote about race and racism and shame. And so I was able to have a fight with Richard Rorty about shame as a graduate student, which was a tremendous honor. And hearing you talk about his work made me feel very warm because he was so kind. Um, and it was really lovely to have a um, principled disagreement where he did not in any way convince me. Um, so this was in 2005 or 2005. So as you were talking, I was thinking, why am I still not convinced about this? And there's a bigger pattern to thinking about shame and whiteness and the whole question of positive or negative affect. So we definitely think about it in that whole question about national shame and national pride. But even when we're talking about um, how and when it's appropriate, reasonable, or good to name the feeling uh, that someone who is the beneficiary of oppression is having as shame. This comes up um, also, I think, notably in Shannon Sullivan's really interesting book, uh, good white people, which I, I completely disagree with, but recommend to, to anyone who's interested in the way that, uh, you know, a particular strand of thinking about race in the U.S. is happening. So Sullivan, like Rorty, argues that it's not feasible for us to have only a negative affect, um, especially a negative affect like shame that really uh, strikes us to our marrow, that turns us in on ourselves, that in fact, in her case, in her argument, she thinks even white people need to have positive affect about whiteness in order to transform. Um, and she's running a broadly Spinozan line about negative affects and positive affects, where negative affects are always immobilizing and shut us down and make it impossible for us to act. And so we need affects like joy uh, that cause us to move. So I think, you know, it's really wonderful when you come up against something that smart people who care about the world and have shared analyses of the wrongs of systemic oppression and the need for collective action, you know, completely disagree. <laughs> so, um, so I think just thinking about this question about um, national pride and national shame, I think pride is the wrong antonym to shame mm, in this case. Interesting. And it might even be that it's the wrong opposite uh, for our personal feelings of shame. So I really go back to a literary theorist, Sylvan Tompkins, and I get to him by way of uh, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. Mm. He was someone who studied with Freud, liked Freud, fought with Freud. And he said, look, there isn't just these drives that you're talking about. There are also all of these other affective axes. And so he thought shame was the opposite of interest, that we feel shame when we've reached toward connection and been shut off from it. And for me, this is one of the things, if you think about shame like that and not, I, I liked, Waleed, what you were saying about this sense of like, the way that psychologists talk about guilt as a thing we do and shame as a thing we are doesn't get us very far in thinking about 
either of those as generative motivations for transforming ourselves or transforming our world. If we look at these sort of other axes, we might get a little bit more traction there, I think. Um, so it's really a question of, if you happen to feel this way about your nation, what does that tell you about the locus of interest and what you want that place to be or to have been? You know, what are you mourning when you feel bad about discovering not just a founding wrong or a founding violence of your nation, but about its ongoing practices and enactments? Like, that's much more interesting to me. Hmm. I'm just trying to think of this new opposite that you've introduced us to. Um, hmm. So actually, what was that? Because uh, it was it was to do with the connection being severed. So what would you call that? So, like... If we think about interest or interest, availability, yes. availability for connection, yeah. that's what Tompkins thinks is the opposite of shame. Okay. So that we feel it when we've reached towards something and we've been shut out. Yes. Um, so, yeah, interest was the word I'd forgotten. I was trying to remember what, what you said. Okay. So uh, I'm trying to make that concrete. Mm. What is the concrete expression of that in a context of someone feeling ashamed of their nation's history? So in the Canadian context, and I've gone back and forth, I'm originally American, I moved to Canada when I was 14, went back to the States, came back. So the difference between Canada and the US is fascinating, and it all is about race. It's, I mean, almost entirely about race. Um, in the Canadian context, I would say the feeling that many Canadians are having about the documentation of uh, unmarked graves at Indian residential schools um, or is Indian residential institutions, increasingly people are saying, let's not even call these schools, right? These were prisons, these were re-education sites, these were places where people were experimented on and killed. Um, these are sites of murder. Uh, the feeling that many people are having, they say, this is not the Canada I believe in. This is not the Canada I thought I knew. Um, I have always been proud of being Canadian. And the subtext there is, I've always been proud of not being American, right? <laughs> I thought we were the good ones. Turns out we're American, right. Okay. Yeah, turns out we're just as bad. Um, so that's a feeling of identification. That's a feeling of, I felt myself to be part of this, and therefore when I discover these things, when I really learn these things, it isn't, that I did them personally. It's that I'm interested in being Canadian. I'm connected to it. I believed in it. And now, although I didn't personally do this, I am horrified to find myself the beneficiary of it, the inheritor of it, uh, the person who is in some way responsible for its being. So we don't have to call that feeling shame, but I find it helpful to say, yeah, you're not feeling guilty, you know? Um, there are people who could feel guilty along that traditional line, right? There are people who are still alive, who worked in those places, who were priests and nuns, who there are people who worked for the RCMP who stole children. They might have their own sets of feelings. But this feeling that I'm interested in that is attaching to a sense of self as identified with a nation I mean, maybe this is a place that if Richard Rorty was still alive, we could agree now that that is simultaneously a feeling of horror and an opening 
toward a belief that things could be otherwise, that we could we could turn from this sense of destabilization. I didn't know this about my own country and and say, all right, what would you want that country to change into now that you know? If uh, you've just joined us, you are listening to The Minefield. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. That voice you just heard belongs to Alexis Shotwell, who's Professor of Philosophy and Anthropology at Carleton University in Canada. Uh, Alexis, I, I love your recasting of the matter of pride in terms of interest, or maybe we could even call it kind of mutual inclination or tending towards one another. Because, I mean, ultimately, what is I, I, I've always disliked the, the notion of pride because it sounds way too chest-beating. Uh, to me, it sounds like a, a form of kind of self-congratulatory, uh, deliberate or willful ignorance. Um, I can't help but think, though, and sorry, this isn't a qualify. This isn't an objection to anything that you've said. But when one begins to feel that one's position in a political community isn't necessarily one of innocence or even beneficence, in other words, that my being here is necessarily good for other people, um, there are three options, aren't there? I guess option number one would be that coming to grips with one's complicity, one's taintedness, one's pollutedness as the result of being part of the life of a nation, that just becomes too much to bear. And therefore, we don't want to know about it. Um, we, we do what Stanley Cavell talks about with guilt, and we just want to conceal the crime. We want to pretend that it doesn't really happen. Or, or it never really happened or else to minimize its effect on its ongoing victims. The other option would be, I mean, I, I love Henry David Thoreau, but he reached the point quite clearly of being unwilling to continue with his complicity in the life of Concord, Massachusetts, and in his participation in the life of the nation uh, through either taxation or tacit consent to the Fugitive Slave Act and therefore withdrew himself uh, in, an, in an effort, I guess, to sort of save his soul and maybe even found a new political community. The third option, if we're suggesting that those first two, that there's maybe something morally suspicious in, a, in their own way about both of them, either forgetting or withdrawing, the third option is, I guess, far more attendant to the effect that the crimes of the past have on those who continue to bear the wounds of those crimes in the present. It would be a way of opening oneself up entirely to registering fully their complaint, their woundedness, their sense of affliction, both as part of the political community, but also as bearers of, of kind of unrelieved suffering. What, does that that kind of opening oneself up fully to registering the woundedness of other members of a political community, how does that then translate into a fuller belonging, a fuller membership to that community, which I assume for that membership to mean anything, it has to mean agency. It has to mean a, a process of cooperation or, or mutual aspiration towards repairing, addressing the crimes of the past and also moving to something else. I mean, I think 
I'm always interested in, I'm trained as a philosopher, so I usually only think that there are three options, but I want to suggest a fourth option. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so because I think we do have a tendency to turn toward the wrongs, right? The violations. And, and definitely, I think you're completely right that we're tuned to or tend to experience our complicity in something or experience ourselves as connected in some deep way with something that we abjure or we reject and to to do either of those things right to try to fling it away from ourselves and not have any of it stick to us or to hide you know and pretend that we have nothing to do with it and that those are very common responses um, e even those are common responses when there's something that isn't a politically laden thing so it's not even that we we can sometimes feel shame just in watching someone else's bad behavior you know mm -hmm. like we can have a cringing feeling about um, just hearing about someone behaving in a way that we think is reprehensible and then we can have lots of other responses to that repetition compulsions and start to want to watch TV shows about serial killers or whatever. There's there's various <laughs> things that happen there. But I think one of the things that I'm interested in is especially looking at um, the case of, in the Canadian context, people trying to reckon with Canada's inheritance of genocide and its ongoing genocidal practices. Uh, there is a move that white people in particular, white settlers do, which is to um, just decide that the only thing we can do is to dig deeper and deeper into how wrong we were, how, how terrible things still are, um, and to get very good at sort of listing all of the terrible, horrible, uh, genocidal things that Canada has done and is doing, and to sort of stop there. Um, and so this is a this is a feature of what I'm thinking of as a shame response that we need to really take as a real danger, right? Because if we just turn toward the damage and just reiterate the damage and reiterate the trauma, that doesn't actually do very much. And one of the fears that happens there when I talk to people or people write to me, they've read something I've written about this. They'll say, I feel so terrible, but I don't want to be confined to a reserve and um, have a past system, or I don't want my kids taken away, right? They think that reckoning just means reversal and that someone needs to be harmed and that what's going to happen if we pursue land back or justice for, in this case, Indigenous people, but also reckoning with the fact that Canada also had uh, chattel slavery and, you know, Black people were enslaved in Canada in ways that are erased and forgotten here, that the reverse is just going to happen and we're just going to have, we're going to kick the white people out or all of us white people are going to be imprisoned or whatever. So we need another, another turn there, which is to say, if you have this experience of identification and horror, the thing that needs to happen next after you recognize your complicity and you wish that it were not so is turning toward transformation, which is not just reversal. 
So that isn't going to just be a reiteration of trauma and harm and genocide. That's going to be something that says this world can be otherwise. And this feeling that we wish it were not so, we wish the world were not like this, we feel terrible about it, is a it's an indication of possibility. It's an indication of hope. It's a wish, right? It's something that we can actually get some traction around. So that's the place where the ethical response of horror at what we're implicated in turns toward a political response that asks what transformation looks like. I wonder though, how easy it is to separate those two things, because part of the problem I see observing the way these debates proceed is that the transformation question is very much determined, sorry, the way you determine that question very much depends on the way that you choose to frame the -hmm. original offence. That's right. Mm -hmm. So if if the original offence is some, is genocide, and, and that's the way you frame it, and it's existentially insurmountable for the nation because mm-hmm. the whole nation is thereby rendered illegitimate, mm-hmm. then there really is no common future that you can call just. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least, maybe I've gone too far, at least there's an argument that there is no common future that you can call just. And mm-hmm. so you could easily see how what comes out of that are a series of demands that are, I think, in the phrase that Scott used before, a kind of national suicide. Mm-hmm. So... While I, I'm, I'm attracted to the way that you framed it, I think that the problems arise once you start to try to populate it, don't they? Because the future that you envisage could well be one that is completely unpalatable to one side of the argument or the other. I'm assuming it's two-sided, sure, like but, one dimension is, of the argument is, or the other. Is unpalatability a problem, right? I mean, well, two things. Well, do, okay, that, is, that word's doing a lot of work. Okay. I, I, I mean unrealizable. Just something that you, you can't, I can't come at that. Well, okay, but right, like Canada is very new country, right? So countries come and go. This mm. is a thing that is a fact. And the question is how? So I'm not actually personally bothered by the thought that Canada goes away as a country. I Yes, I but, don't... but you would be in such a vanishingly small minority <laughs> that right. th- this just becomes an unrealizable way of imagining the future of Canada. But the thing that I think can be not a vanishingly small minority is, and the place where I feel interested, you know, and then so maybe my interest can be also a site of shame. But the place that I feel interested is a lot of Canadians look at this history and they are horrified that they didn't know about it and they feel like someone tricked them. And they say, I, this is not the country that I believe in, right? So it might be that we could still have something that we call Canada, um, right? So maybe maybe my wish for a world without militarized nation-state borders is not going to happen tomorrow. Um, but that impulse to say this is not something that I will consent to. I reject this. I don't know what I'm. I don't know what I want. Right? Like that's what people say. They're like, I don't know how to be otherwise, but I don't want to be like this. That feels interesting to me and promising. And so, so yes, I know I'm being a little polemical to be like, it's okay with me if Canada stops existing. It only has started existing pretty recently. But it's definitely okay with me if Canada stops existing like this, right? So that would mean 
the prime minister who characterizes his own father's policies as shameful, right? Like it was Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who enacted many of the things that Justin Trudeau is now saying are shameful. You know, he's the prime minister. He actually could do some things and mm. he's not, right? Um, but he could. So what happens after he feels shame? That's interesting. Yes, that is interesting. But but we're talking in a very different register now, aren't we, than you, what you're talking about when we're talking about the, the idea of ordinary people who mm -hmm. don't possess the levers of power feeling this shame and then coming well, up with some kind of imagined future. Well, I mean, not not, not necessarily though. Uh, can I just can I just sort of turn this uh, slightly on its head? It seems to me that one of the real issues here, and here I'm most deeply informed by the debates surrounding reconciliation and constitutional recognition of Indigenous persons in Australia. I mean, one of the things that's been so fascinating here, I think, is that part of the deadlock or the dead end that Australian politics and cultural life has found itself in is the incapacity or the inability, imaginatively, constitutionally, historically, narratively, to reconcile the persistence of the original owners of this land with the constitutional settlement uh, that founded the nation state of Australia. The ability to reconcile those two things together in terms of a single common narrative and do, do full justice to the voices of those, the narrative of those, the ongoing injury to those who were the first nations of this land. That's been one of the ongoing difficulties, which I suppose... Uh, is why the invitation held out by indigenous elders, academics, by the framers of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, that, that invites Australians into a process of mutual dialogue, of storytelling, that reverses the order of the national narrative, that tries not so much to reconcile our constitutional order with the First Nations of this land, but instead tries to weave them together in a story that tells the tale of a kind of painful act of initial hospitality, whereby those who colonized are now the recipients of a tremendous invitation to join in a process of dialogue, of consultation, of treaty making. One of the things that that does, I suppose, is it suspends the identity of Australia as a nation. It doesn't say that this is fundamentally a constitutional order within which, uh, within which the original owners need to be found a place. Instead, it says if we're going to give the owners of this land, the original nations of this land, if, if we're going to give their grievance a full moral register, if we're going to allow that experience to be, if you like, the defining experience of this land, then it's what comes next that needs to be accommodated. It's what comes next with the settlers uh, and then with wave upon wave of, uh, of immigrants. It's what comes next that needs to be given a place. I guess what makes that so discomforting but morally compelling is it means if we enter into this process of conversation – of, of truth-telling, of the reweaving of a national narrative, then what the hell does it mean to be Australian? It suspends national identity for a time and it allows that sense of national identity to only emerge then after the fact and to allow those who have the first story to tell to be the ones who, if you like, set the narrative and the moral framework. I guess to my mind, it's the retelling of the constitutional priority 
uh, or it's the displacement of the constitutional priority. That, that, that for me is what I find in many respects both productive uh, but also morally compelling. And I, uh, it's hard for me to understand then why more Australians or why more Australian politicians uh, haven't found themselves more accommodating to that way of thinking about our shared identity. So as you're talking there, Scott, I'm thinking, okay, so this, this is exactly why Australia's handling of the Uluru Statement from the Heart was so shameful. Mm. Um, so to that extent, I register it. But then the problem arises when you get to detail. So you say you want to suspend the national identity while we sort of nut this out. I'm not sure that's the right word because I don't think a national identity can be suspended. I think at the moment you try to suspend it, you get chaos because what you then have is a genuine crisis of meaning and a void is opened up and that will be filled and I'm not altogether optimistic about what would fill it. I mean, so the interesting thing, I don't know how closely they match, but right in the Canadian context, all of the treaties, the treaties that founded Canada, right, were required a recognition from Indigenous nations that Canada was a treaty-making entity, so there is this way that Canada's yes. identity is parasitic on Indigenous nationhood, hmm. um, and and the 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 formation of Canada as a place, um, you know, I mean, it's very complicated, and of course, it's here there are so many different Indigenous nations that, like, I'm on unceded land. You know, there was no treaty, there was no agreement that gave away Ottawa. Like the capital is not, is, it was never surrendered. Um, but then there are lots of um, places further west where there are treaties. But, you know, the interesting thing or the thing that I notice a lot of Canadians beginning to respond to now is those treaties have all, all been broken, right, uh, thoroughly in every particular. They, the founding documents that secured Canadian identity and the possibility of it as a nation state have all been violated. So so that's that's not a void, right? That's actually a, a question where people, you know, so my own wish sometimes to do, just do away with Canada and start over, uh, runs up against the recognition that no, if we're moving towards something else, a place to start is with saying, you have to start meeting your treaty requirements, right? Like you have to, for example, not pollute the water and land and air. Um, that's right there. You signed off on it. So there uh, are is these a way treaties that, not legally binding. Well, I mean, things are legally binding and then violated and then never. I mean, it's really like when you start digging even a little bit, it's just like, whoa, Canada, are you serious here? You know, like, I mean, this is why. This is why people are pulling down statues of Sir John A. Macdonald, the the first prime minister, because people are like, wait, he actually he actually like cleared the plains of Canada through on purpose starving people to death. Like, I'm not okay with that, you know. So, um, so yes, they should be legally binding, um, and and some of the interesting things that people are doing are also bringing court cases. But part of Canada's part of Canada's genocidal practices have been precisely the incredible array and overlapping practices of attempting to erase and do away with indigenous identity. So this reckoning that we're doing right now with Indian residential schools is just one 
very small branch, right? So that impulse, as McDonald said, to kill the Indian and the child was, uh, that was targeted to take away language, to take away gener generations, to, to take away relation with land, right? So to make those kids not be able to enact their responsibilities to their land. Um, but this happened in all these other ways, right? So if you went to university, you were no longer, you no longer had status. If you were an indigenous woman and you married a settler or a white man, you lost status. So there's just layers and layers of erasure, attempted erasure. And, and maybe that's one place to come back to this sense, not only of legal, failed legal commitments, but also, um, also the fact that that hasn't worked, you know, that there are live, lively, resurgent indigenous nations all across what's currently Canada. Um, they didn't go away. They didn't die. You know, they're alive and they're, they're fighting. Um, we're out of time, Alexis, but it's, it's a fascinating place so much to leave us here in Australia, I think, because we don't have treaties in place. Some states mm -hmm. are working on them. Um, but it perhaps raises a flag that while I, I mean, personally, I know, don't know about you, Scott, I think you agree with me on this, that I think treaties are, and probably a national treaty is an indispensable part of Australia's future in this area. Yes, absolutely. Um, you do raise the prospect of whether or not it actually means very much and the mm -hmm. things to look out for. Um, if we were ever to get to that, which I fear we're, we're not about to, but um, it's an important thing to have put on our radar. So thank you for doing that part of your job brilliantly and the rest of it as well. We appreciate it. Um, great to have access to you. That is... Thank uh, you so much for talking. Not at all. Alexis Shotwell is Professor of Sociology, Anthropology and Philosophy at Carlton University in Ottawa. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're done for the week. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.